With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Saja Radio. This is Sri Srinivasan, co-founder of Saja, the South Asian Journalist Association, and a professor of journalism at Columbia University. This is the latest in our series of chats with Saja's leadership, a chance for the members of Saja as well as friends of Saja to learn more about Saja and its leaders. Today's guest is Vivi Ganeshanantan, who is Saja's new vice president and convention chair. She is also the author of a brand new book, Love Marriage Novel, and she'll talk about that, as well as her work and her ideas and vision for Saja in the months ahead. Please welcome Vivi Ganeshanantan. Thank you so much for having me, Sri. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, first of all, I'm going to call you Sugi. And uh, um, just tell us a little bit about why you decided to step up like this with with Sajra. Well, um, I think now is a, a really perfect time for me. I graduated from Columbia's new Master of Arts program in May and have been writing ever since. So I've got a very flexible schedule. And also with all of the things that are going on in the news in countries that are, you know, we're used to South Asian news being dominated by India, and in recent months, you know, we've seen important events going on in Pakistan. Um, my family is Sri Lankan, and obviously there's a continuing ethnic conflict there. And I've always wanted to see Sadr diversify its programming and its membership, and I thought that um, stepping up to take a more formal role in the convention would be a great way to do it, and also um, give me a platform to see if I can reach out to different members who, you know, may not have thought about joining Sadr in the past. It's uh, the 60th anniversary of Sri Lanka's independence, and it's been barely noted in the mainstream U.S. press. Can you tell us why that, why that is? Well, um, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I think that, you know, obviously the Sri Lankan war has been going on. You know, people date it starting at different points. Some people... Most most people date it starting at 1983. So, I mean, at this point, that's, that's you know, this war is 25 years old. And, I mean, I think there's a lot of fatigue in trying to figure out how to cover it. It's an extremely complicated war. It's not one side versus another. Um, no side particularly has total moral high ground, although I'm sure there are people who would disagree with me about that. Um, and I think that, you know, it's it's complicated and on a daily basis, the number of people who are dying from it are, you know, it's usually small enough that it doesn't, you know, get a huge headline. But on the other hand, if you add up, say, 30, 40 people every day for, say, five years, you know, that's a pretty substantial total. And, I mean, that's that's a number that I'm sort of pulling off of my own personal Google alerts. But, I mean, it's it's not, it's dramatic in all of the most complicated ways. The other thing is that um, the U.S. doesn't have obvious interests there that compete with, say, you know, U.S. interest in India or China or Iraq. It's a small country. Right, Iraq. It's a small country. And um, so I think that 
for all of those reasons, it's difficult to cover. Finally, I think that one reason that it's particularly difficult to cover since 9-11 is that there is this urge in the U.S. and the Western media in general to put everything into a religious framework. And this is, I mean, sure, there are elements of religion in the Sri Lankan conflict, but there's just a strong element of ethnicity and you know, other, other things under that. So it's not, it's not sort of a, a Buddhist versus Hindu conflict, and the desire to reduce it into that, I think, um, causes problems in coverage. Well, this is also, I think, one of the other reasons why there isn't as much coverage might be that there aren't that many Sri Lankan journalists in American media. And uh, they, you know, having, as we've seen with India, with Pakistan, just having journalists in the newsroom who are familiar and understand the story uh, can also uh, help with some of this coverage. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is I'm hoping to see more Sri Lankan Americans considering journalism and also Sri Lankans in other countries I know have recently been joining the discussion list. So, you know, keeping that conversation active and, and helping, you know, maybe members who are not Sri Lankan understand a little bit more about what's going on there and, and helping to contextualize that conflict appropriately. What, um, yeah, you know, what's what's interesting and, and what may, many people in the audience may not realize is that there's a, the reason there is a saja is, uh, can be traced to a particular event regarding Sri Lanka. And in fact, even you may not know this, Sugi, but uh, no, back in... Uh, 1994, the uh, uh, the, um, foreign minister of Sri Lanka was coming to New York, and um, I and a couple of other people tried to organize an event about uh, about an event a meeting with him, and was told by so many people that this wouldn't be interesting because he was the foreign minister of Sri Lanka. You know, even though Sri Lanka was in this very extensive civil war and everything else. But you can imagine if it had been the foreign minister of China or Korea or Japan, there would have been a lot of interest. And so that's what planted the seeds of an idea that there is a need for a South Asian journalism organization. A couple of years later, when the Sri Lankan foreign minister did come to New York again, Saja hosted an event and had a ton of people there. And so it kind of tells you that there is a distinct interest in affairs about South Asia, but the problem, as we are learning, is even within South Asia, there needs to be diversity and focus on places beyond India and Pakistan. Well, that's, that's a, I can't believe I've never heard that story. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's great. That's yeah, great. Well, I love this interview. Yeah, well, let's uh, bring in some questions here. We've got uh, people on our web chat uh, at blogtalkradio.com slash Saja, and also someone on the line who's called into our phone number, which I'll just give you again here if anybody would like to call in. The, the phone number uh, is... 347-324-5991, 347-324-5991, that's a number in New York. There's someone here from the 612 area code. Let's see if they have a question for you. Uh, let me just go to them. Well, this is new technology, so we're uh, all trying to learn how this works. Let's see. Uh, do you have a question for Sugi? Let's try one more time. Uh, caller from 612, do you have a question for Sugi? If not, we're going to go to a question here that's come up on the web chat here. Um, how does the coverage of Sri Lanka compare in Canadian and European news outlets? And for that matter, the number of Sri Lankan journalists in those particular countries. I think the understanding among a lot of people is that there is more awareness about the Sri Lankan issue in Canada and certainly in Europe compared to America. 
Um, I think that's that's certainly true. Um, perhaps, I mean, and this is probably arguable. I don't actually know the statistics on it, but um, the largest wave of immigration out of Sri Lanka, probably in relation direct relation to the war, was post-1983. There were um, riots in Sri Lanka in 1983, and a lot of Sri Lankan Tamils, in particular, left after that. And um, many of those people were offered, you know, refuge or were given sort of a, a, a more explicit welcome in Canada and in England in particular, in Australia also, um, and in a lot of EU countries. So there are larger populations there. The United States did not do that. And so you've got a really specific Sri Lankan Tamil population in London, other parts of England, in Toronto, Canada, um, and in Australia there's a huge Sri Lankan Tamil population. So I think, you know, that there's a demand for coverage there that maybe there isn't here. And also people who are covering things for specifically, you know, for the ethnic media, um, the ethnic media in those countries takes a more specific interest in Sri Lanka as well. So, I mean, I can't really speak to how many Sri Lankan journalists there are in this country. In those countries, uh, Saja is a specifically North American organization. And while we do keep in touch with journalists overseas, I can't speak to any numbers there. But, um, Certainly, there are more ethnic media outlets that deal specifically with Sri Lanka in overseas, and oftentimes, um, you know, that coverage will be in Tamil. Often, often. I mean, I I know that I've seen Tamil newspapers in in Toronto and in London, and um, a lot of those people, because they left after those riots, will tend to be very anti-government. Right. Uh, one of the things that uh, you know, people always put all the whole South Asian community as one big blob, and and presume the stereotypes are the same in all uh, in all the different communities. Is there a, a similar, um, let's say, resistance or reluctance to let kids become journalists within the Sri Lankan community? As there might be in, say, the Indian community and the Pakistani community, is there some kind of, or is there, is there some kind of tradition in Sri Lanka itself that journalism is some noble cause? Well, I mean, I think, I think especially because of the war, people have come to see journalism as a noble cause. But at the same time, it's become extremely dangerous, particularly for journalists in Sri Lanka. Um, a number of journalists have been killed or kidnapped or. Uh, face other threats in the past couple of years in particular. So um, it's hard for me to separate that from sort of the general South Asian identity and the concept that South Asian parents want their, want their children to pursue math and science. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, I think the emphasis on math and science is there, but um, in, in recent years, there's been a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of respect for journalists, but also a lot of concern. I mean, it's, hard to want your child to go into that when, you know, you look at your country and you see what happens to journalists there. So I think, you know, press freedom in Sri Lanka is a, is a big concern. Um, and I think that, you know, kids kids here, you know, they do face similar pressures in terms of, you know, they're wanting to do, to do something that's more traditionally lucrative, something that's a little bit more, more to the standard to give them a comfortable lifestyle, and journalism isn't always that. So there, there is some connection there, certainly. Well, well, let's use this as an opportunity to learn a little bit about you. Tell us your story, where you were born, how you ended up uh, not uh, fulfilling all the stereotypes of a young South Asian American. 
<laughs> I was um, born in Connecticut, and I moved to Bethesda, Maryland when I was five years old. And I grew up there and went to high school there and graduated um, from a high school there when I was 18 and then went to Harvard College. And Bethesda was a great place to grow up. It was incredibly diverse. It's right near NIH, the World Bank, lots of government offices. For a long time, um, Sri Lankan diplomats uh, lived near us. There were other Sri Lankan kids in my school. Not a lot of them, but there were a couple. And there were both Sinhalese and Tamil kids. There's a great Sri Lankan community in D.C. Um, and I really enjoyed growing up there. And then I went to Harvard College where I was on the Crimson, which was the, the college newspaper there. And I was the managing editor of the Crimson, and that was actually how I met you, um, a key moment in my Saja history. And I was an intern at the Wall Street Journal's Washington, D.C. Bureau covering economics. And uh, my Wall Street Journal mentor came over and said, you know, some of the editors were wondering what your, what your uh, ethnicity is because they were wondering about the South Asian Journalists Association and if you would be interested in it. And it turned out that I think you and Raju Narasetti, who's now working at Mint, um, had seen my byline and thought, you know, here's this young intern who we don't know or whatever, and maybe she would be interested in Saja. And I'd never been interested in a South Asian organization, not that I hadn't been interested, I hadn't really been actively involved in a South Asian organization prior to that. Um, been so involved in journalism things, and it was hard to do both. And so when I found an organization that had South Asian journalists, I felt pretty instantly at home. And it was great because I was this little peon intern, and um, I was having a great time. It was a great job, and I thought, wow, people are people are really paying. Someone someone was paying attention, and um, that was the summer of 2001. And I've been involved in Saja ever since. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your your you know where you've worked, where you've studied, because you've done several things uh, since Harvard. That's true. Um, so I graduated from Harvard in 2002, and then I worked at the Atlantic Monthly for a year where I specifically was working with James Fallows on higher education coverage. Higher education has always been an interest of mine. When I was in college, I worked at the Harrisburg Patriot News in Pennsylvania. I worked at the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a um, publication that goes to all universities and covers a lot of student and campus. Oh, yeah, it's the paper record for, for yeah. uh, people in tweed jackets. Yes, exactly. And actually, I, I really love covering education. I've never, I mean, I think it's it's just so, I mean, it's it's such a terrific beat. I really loved covering education, and I still follow it really closely. And then um, my last internship was at Wall Street Journal internship, where I sort of e-met you, and um, then I went to the Atlantic. And after a year at the Atlantic, I went to graduate school at the Iowa Writers Workshop in Iowa City. Um, which is where, in fact, my Saja junior buddy resides also. And I got an MFA in fiction. I graduated from there in 2005. And I've moved around a lot. So then I went to Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire, and I was the writer in residence there for one year. And this is a private, uh, very elite uh, high school, right? Private boarding school. It's a private boarding school. and Co-ed or not? It is co-ed. Okay. It's funny. A lot of people ask me that. Right. They ask me if I if I 
was a writer in residence in an all-boys school. And I think that at one point it was an all-boys school, but it's been co-ed for quite some time. And um, it was a very generous fellowship. They, you know, give you housing. They give you sort of the run of the campus. There's an enormous library. They're able to do a lot of research and get a lot of writing done and also to work with students, which is something that I particularly like to do. And um, after that, I came to New York and matriculated into the second class of Columbia's new Master of Arts program, which is for people who have some experience in journalism but want to specialize in a certain kind. So I specialized in arts and culture journalism. And about a month into my school year, I sold the, um, my first novel, which I had started working on in college. And uh, I spent last year working on my journalism thesis and my novel. And, and you managed to graduate also and do well here. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sri. And yeah, so I, I, did, I did manage to graduate and write a thesis. And um, now the book, yeah, so the book is coming out in April. And I've just been freelancing as a reporter and working on fiction since graduating. Well, I do want to ask you uh, uh, and want to have you talk about the book. But just uh, here's a question that uh, has come in. How does your identity as a fiction writer fit into your role as Saja member and now Saja officer? And what do you see as the role more generally in Saja for writers who may not be traditional journalists? What does the organization have to offer? So there's a couple of things in there. But it's a good, it's a good question in the sense that what happens when uh, so many people are uh, kind of journalists on the side. They have day jobs, and especially as the media landscape kind of morphs the way it has been. Well, I think it provides, obviously, you know, Sandeep talked about this a little bit in his interview with you, and the excellent opportunities for networking that Sadra provides. You know, if you are someone who writes short stories and you're maybe interested in trying nonfiction, if you come to the Sadra convention, there are workshops. If you, you know, come, if you live in New York, there are tons of events. There are tons of events in other cities around the country, different chapters, and those all have an educational element. So if you want to branch out a little bit, that's a great way to do it. And I think that also, you know, likewise, the, the journalists, sort of more traditional journalists in Saja, um, get something out of the storytelling that, you know, fiction writers are involved in. There's a lot of interest in uh, narrative narrative techniques that have traditionally been used in fiction you know, are, are part, a strong part of narrative journalism. The Neiman Narrative Journalism Conference does a lot with this. And um, our own convention you know, has, has a lot of these workshops where, you know, in the past, Paula Spann and um, Shankar Vedantam, there's, there's a great example of a Sadra member who writes fiction and is a terrific reporter and was, in fact, my Sadra mentor. Um, the Shankar Vedantam at the Washington Post, yeah. whose work I uh, I recommend to anyone. To, you know, Google his name, B E D A N T M. I think his website is vedantam.com, and you can see his good work there. Yeah, and um, when I first joined Saja, and there was um, an earlier version of the Saja Buddy program set up, I was paired with Shankar, and um, it was great to have someone who had those two interests be in touch with me and have his advice on how I might juggle those roles. And um, so I think that networking is really the great thing that Saja offers. A lot of my like, closest friends now are from, are from Saja. That's great. What is your um, thinking about um, where you're going to be able to fit in your, your nonfiction and fiction lives, if you will, writing lives? I think as a nonfiction writer, I am going to tend mostly to essays and probably more literary essays. 
I did recently take a trip to Singapore and Malaysia with um, another Saja member, Preston Merchant, for reporting purposes. We were covering a sort of surge of political unrest among Malaysia's Indian population. And so I think that I'll more and more frequently in the future be using travel as a way to see a country and as a way to report and um, have been invited to blog on CPM Mutiny, was invited to blog on CPM Mutiny with Preston about that trip. So he and I both posted our various takes. And um, Let me just tell, again, for people who are not familiar with it, cpmutiny.com is a fabulous uh, place to kind of see second-generation uh, Indian and uh, and South Asian Americans writing about the world around them, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite blogs. It's incredible fun to to blog for them, and there's a great community of um, commenters that really keep a lively conversation going. And they actually have invited me to stay for another month and to not blog about just Singapore and Malaysia, but to blog about sort of whatever hits my fancy. So. I'm excited to be doing that for the next month, so that's one of my nonfiction hats. And um, I think also I'll just I'll just keep working on writing about writing about Sri Lanka and writing about other things from sort of an essayistic perspective. I mean, I haven't been able to go back there as a reporter, and that's that's really unfortunate because there isn't a lot of reporting going on there. But it's it's difficult for me as someone with personal history there to go back um, for a variety of reasons. Okay, let's talk a little. We have about nine minutes left, and I encourage uh, anyone listening in to send us questions uh, via the web chat or to call in and uh, ask a question live with Sugi. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your book, and we should uh, have you back to talk separately about the book at another point. But uh, tell us about Love, Marriage, a Novel. Uh, Love, Marriage, I started, I guess I was a sophomore in college, and I was in a independent study with um, a professor at Harvard, Jamaica Kincaid, who is a literary fiction writer and brilliant and an incredible teacher. And I'm very I, famous. <laughs> and, I, um, and I just started, started working with her. And uh, when I was in a class with her as a junior, I wrote the first few pages of Love Marriage. And the class responded particularly strongly to it and wanted more. And then I realized that some of the stuff I'd been writing as a sophomore sort of fit after that, and it sort of sort of all fell into place after that beginning. And it was funny, I didn't really have any intention. I didn't sort of think I'm sitting down to write the first part of a novel or anything like that. And um, Love Marriage is told from the point of view of Yalini, who is a first-generation Sri Lankan Tamil American, and she doesn't really know very much about what's going on in Sri Lanka and um, finds herself confronted by the conflict in a very unusual way when she goes to Toronto and uh, finds that her uncle, her mother's brother, has reemerged after many years of being missing, and he has left the Tigers, which is the main um, the rebel movement, the main rebel movement in Sri Lanka, and has has come to, come back to Toronto. So she discovers all of these things about her family and finds herself on morally ambiguous ground and is is forced to try and figure out where she fits into it. And uh, a lot of it is told through the framework of a series of marriages on both sides of her family and um, how those marriages sort of defy category and also fit into them, 
which is a lot of what's going on in Sri Lanka, I think, in general. And, of course, this is the standard question that every interviewer uh, is going to ask you, how much of this is autobiographical? I mean, certainly I think any writer writing, including reporters, frankly, are writing out of their own experience. You know, you're writing from the way that you've been taught to see the world. And my family was very helpful in, you know, in research in terms of, you know, people, and and also people who were not my relatives were very helpful, you know, letting me interview them, um, referring me to books. Um, it's It's not that autobiographical. I mean, I don't have an uncle who was a tiger, um, I developed a great affection for Toronto over many years. I do have relatives in Toronto, and I love Toronto. I think it's fantastic. And um, so, I mean, certainly elements of my own experience have crept in like that. I did choose to set it in Toronto, in part because I had been there and loved it. And um, But at the same time, I mean, there are logical reasons that such an event would take place in Toronto. So, as usual, it's, it's a jumble, and it's a bit oh, hard course. to sort out, but... But, but, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of those questions uh, as we go forward, or as you do I your will, tour. Yeah, now it's well, on, it coming out in April, is that right? Yes, it, it's coming out on April 8th, and I am going to, I think at this point, eight or nine or ten cities. Um, and I also get to go to Torino, Italy, which I'm really excited about for a book fair there. And I'll be doing events in New York and Boston and Seattle and San Francisco. And you can see my book tour dates at basugi.com. B-A-S-U-G-I.com. So I hope that I see Sajra members at every stop. Yes, we will make sure that happens. We only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, can you tell us uh, very quickly in your role as VP or also convention chair? So give us the dates and other uh, good stuff. Okay. Well, the convention this year is taking place on June 20th and 21st in New York City, and we will have one day at the City University of New York where Sandeep is a professor. And we will have the other day at Columbia University where you are a professor and where tons of Sajra members are alums. And uh, we'll be scaling the convention back a little bit this year because this year is also Unity, which is a big journalism convention of uh, a number of ethnic journalist organizations coming together. So we wanted to give members who can go to both the opportunity to do that um, while at the same time making sure that we're, we're giving you the usual you know, useful takeaways that that we try to we try to make sure you leave the convention really feeling like you know you've you've got things you can take back to the newsroom and put to use or you know take back to your freelancing life or your book writing life or your considering journalism and maybe I'm not sure life. So um so that's those are the details and you can also check out updates on uh, saja.org and we'll post them as they become available. Okay, and so people can uh, keep keep in touch, and they can send ideas on to you. Have a email address for the convention specifically. Yes, and it's Saja Convention 2008. We are looking for ideas and. Volunteers. Oh, sorry, at Gmail Saja Convention 2008 at Gmail dot com. I'm sorry, what did I say? Okay. Uh, we didn't do the rest of it. Okay, yeah, sorry. No, yeah. um, yes, it's Saja Convention 2008 at Gmail dot com, and hoping for volunteers and. Uh, if there are things you would like to see or feedback from last year, please feel free to send it on, and we'll be keeping in touch with that. And uh, last couple of things. Uh, I see on vasugi.com there's a contact form. A lot of reporters uh, are, are, are worried that these forms sort of go into a black hole. Uh, do you actually get to see them and respond when it's appropriate? I do. It, they, those go directly to my inbox. Um, 
and I, I get them the second you send them, and I uh, am a big believer in online communication. So if you write to me via the contact form, I will do my best to get back to you. Well, that's, that's very good to know. So I think we'll wrap up here. Any final thoughts? Um, I'm just really excited to be working with Sadra this year and thrilled for the opportunity and glad to meet a lot of members. Okay. And we'll, Thanks so much for having me. And we'll continue to check in with you about the book and uh, talk to you closer to the convention. And we want to encourage everybody who's listening to please go to saja.org, sign up as a member of Saja, and uh, come out to the convention June 20th to 21st. Our guest has been Vivi Ganeshanantan, who is Saja's new vice president and author of Love, Marriage, a novel that comes out in April. Thanks, Sugi. So much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Sugi. Hello? With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.